Good morning, and welcome to the Truth and Love radio broadcast. This program has been a part of the Mid-South for the last 70 years, faithfully overseen by the Getwold Church of Christ. Truth and Love will carry on lifting up the banner of New Testament Christianity today to the Mid-South area under the oversight of the Olive Branch Church of Christ. Please join us now as Mike Hickson opens the Bible and shares the truth in love. In 2 Peter chapter 1, the Apostle Peter said that God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. It's an amazing thing that God has given us everything that we need to know about living a godly life in Christ Jesus. You know, there are some things that we would do well to consider in light of the brevity of life, to realize that we are temporal beings in a temporal world. The fact of the matter is that life is passing us by so quickly. As Job said many years ago, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble, Job 14, verse 1. It was said by the Hebrew writer many years ago, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. James, you remember, compared life to a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. In this text, we are assured that God has given us everything that we need to know, again, about life and godly living. Now, in light of that, there are some tremendous promises that are spoken of throughout the Scriptures that pertain to a life in Christ. Having said that, I want you to consider with me for a moment or two some thoughts from this passage. Number one, to realize that as we begin to look at the Scriptures— There are some facts that must be believed. Now, I want to preface this by simply pointing out that the Word of God, the all-sufficient Word of God, is not the product of man. I know that there are some who view the Bible as nothing more than a compilation of the thoughts of men. But in the chapter that we're looking into right now, down in verse 20, Peter said, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Peter there simply acknowledging the fact that the Scriptures did not originate in the hearts and minds of mankind. But rather, note what he says in verse 21. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or borne along by the Holy Spirit. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, Paul said, All Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, 
that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped or furnished unto every good work. To understand that the Word of God really is comprised of 66 books, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. There are three dispensations of time spoken of in the Scriptures. First and foremost, you have the period of the patriarchs. Secondly, the patriarchal period was followed by the Mosaic economy, the law of Moses, which then gave way to the law of Christ, that is, the new covenant. Jesus, of course, is the mediator of that new covenant, and the new covenant a result of the shedding of his blood. We live today under the new covenant or the New Testament, identified by Paul in Galatians chapter 6 at verse 2 as the law of Christ. In James chapter 1 verse 21, or rather verse 25, James cited the perfect law of liberty. In chapter 2 at verse 12, it is called the law of liberty. You see, the law of liberty provides liberty to those who will embrace it. Jesus said many years ago, when you shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. Now, having said that, to realize that God's word has been given for our benefit. We are the beneficiaries of the mind of God. Now, with that being said, I mentioned a moment ago that there are some facts that must be believed. If I do not appreciate the inspiration of Scripture, then I will never come to an appreciation of the facts revealed in this sacred book. Number one, I have to believe that God is. Now, I know that there are people in the world today that would wave off the existence of God. There are those who affirm there is no God. They are atheists. And then you have some who are agnostics. They say you can't really know that there's a God, but you can't really disprove that there's not a God. So in other words, the verdict's out. And then there are those who claim that we're the products of evolution, that this world just popped into existence, or that we are the result of some type of cataclysmic explosion. Well, listen to what the record says beginning in Genesis chapter 1 in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 26, the Godhead, that being God the Father, Jesus the eternal Word, and the Holy Spirit. The Lord said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. We are the products of Almighty God. Can I know that God exists? Can I affirm that fact? My response would be unequivocally, yes. Now, you might ask the question, how so? How do you know that God exists? Well, it doesn't take an Einstein to realize that this world is the product of design. I mean, who could believe that the world that we live in, the complexity of the world and the body, that's just the product of chance? Not, not a chance. No pun intended. Think for a moment or two about what David said many years ago. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork, Psalm 19 at verse 1. Somebody built the house that you live in. 
Somebody manufactured the car that you drive, the clothes that you wear. Somebody made a pattern, and from that pattern, they made the clothes that you wear every day. Now, design always demands a designer, doesn't it? Do you remember what the Hebrew writer said many years ago? Every house is built by some man, but he who built all things is God. Can I know that there is a God based upon creation? And the answer, yes, and yes, a hundred times over. But now, I can't know the mind of God, the character of God, his nature, separate and apart from revelation. Now, I can affirm God is. As a matter of fact, without faith, I can't please the Lord. That's what the Hebrew writer said in chapter 11. Without faith, it is impossible to be well-pleasing to him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Question, how does faith come? Well, Paul answered that. Paul said, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans 10 at verse 17. Now, I said a minute ago that we can know that there's a God because of creation, but also because of revelation. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul tells us that he received revelation from God, that he took that revelation and wrote it down in a few words. He said, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5 and about verse 17, Paul would say, be not unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So I can know that there is a God, and that God is the one who designed all things. As a matter of fact, when we talk about the redemptive plan, God was the architect of that redemptive plan, because the Bible speaks of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God had a plan in mind to save the crown of his creation. So number one, when we talk about facts that must be believed, I have to believe that God is. But then, secondly, I must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, again, I know that there are those in the world today who, if you were to ask them, who was Jesus? They would say, well, he was a good man. Others might vouch for the fact that he was a man of high moral integrity, that he sought to aid those who were facing some of the social injustices of their day. I mean, there are so many things that could be said about the Christ, that he was compassionate and loving and caring and so on. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus on one occasion asked the disciples about his identity. And they responded by saying that, you know, some are saying you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Well, the Lord Jesus was not any of those cited by the disciples. There were many in the first century misinformed about his identity. But then Jesus asked this question, but whom do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up. And Peter said, you are the Christ. That is, you are the anointed one, the Messiah, the one of whom the prophets of old have spoken. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now listen to what Jesus said. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. 
Jesus commending Peter for the statement made that he was, that he is today, the Son of the living God. You recall over in John chapter 6, Jesus had spoken of himself as the bread of life. Matter of fact, he said, I am the bread of life. One of the great I am statements recorded in the Gospel of John. There are seven of those. But in connection with that, many of those who were present on that occasion said this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And John said that many of the people that were present on that occasion went back and walked no more with him. And then the Lord turned to the twelve and he asked this question. But whom? Well, he asked this question. Will you also go away? And you remember what Peter said? Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of life eternal. And we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Did it matter to Jesus what people thought of him? Well, the answer would be yes. In John chapter 8, we have an extended dialogue taking place between Jesus and the people of his day. And you remember in John chapter 8 at verse 24, Jesus said, except you believe that I am. In other words, unless you come to believe that I am the eternal self-existent one. He said, you'll die in your sins. And Jesus said, if you die in your sins where I am, there you cannot come. So do we have to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Well, the answer would be yes. Back in John chapter 1, John introduces us to that eternal word. You remember he said, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, affirming his eternal nature. As a matter of fact, over in Colossians chapter 1, Paul would say in Colossians 1 verse 15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. But then if we go back to John chapter 1, down in verse 14, John says that the eternal word that he inhabited bodily form or human flesh, because he said, and the word became flesh, and we beheld his glory. Glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now look at Colossians chapter 2 at verse 9. Paul there emphasized this great point. Paul said, in him, that's in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So what are we to think about the Christ? He's the Son of God. And then, in, in terms of facts that must be believed, to believe that the church is the house of the saved. Now, again, when we look at what people are saying on the street, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, you know, the church is really not that important of an entity in the realm of our salvation. And the idea is that one can enjoy a relationship with Jesus separate and apart from his divine body, the church. But I would remind all of us that the church and Christ are inseparable. As a matter of fact, when it comes to the redemptive plan, the church was not a part of God's redemptive plan. No, the church was God's redemptive plan. In Ephesians 3, verses 9 through 11, Paul makes it abundantly clear the church exists according to the eternal purpose of God. 
Daniel, back in Daniel chapter 2 at verse 44, talked about that indestructible kingdom, that eternal kingdom, when the Lord Jesus began his earthly ministry. You remember he said, repent. Why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom and the church being one and the same. In Mark 9 verse 1, the Lord Jesus Christ said to some on one particular occasion, that there were some standing there that would not see death until he said, you see the kingdom of God come with power. When did that occur? Pentecost day, where? In Jerusalem. Now, with regard to the essentiality of the church and our salvation, in Acts chapter two, some 3,000 people obeyed the gospel on Pentecost day. And Luke says in Acts chapter two, verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So those who comprised the church were the saved. The saved were in the church. Now in Ephesians 5 verse 23, listen to what Paul said. And he, that is Christ, is the Savior of the body. All right, if Jesus is the Savior of the body, what we have to do is define the body. In Ephesians 1 22, Paul said he put all things in subjection under his feet, made him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And by the way, there's just one body, and the body is the church. Well, how do I know that? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul said, There is one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. Now, let's think in the second place. Number one, there are facts that must be believed. Number two, there are commands that must be obeyed. Did you know that the Bible tells us what to do to be saved? and to stay saved. In Acts chapter 17, we have an account of the apostle Paul. He's in the city of Athens. He's preaching and teaching the one true God to those who were present on Mars Hill. And Paul pointed out that God is the one who is the giver of all life, breath, and all things. But down in verse 30, I want you to take note of what Paul said. He writes, or he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked or winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Listen again. The times of ignorance God winked at or overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Well, what is repentance? Repentance is a change of heart followed by a change in our actions. So Paul, are you saying then that a command given by God is that we repent? Yes. Listen to Jesus in Luke 13 at verse 3. The Lord said, I tell you nay, except you repent, you will all likewise perish. He reiterated that in verse 5 as well. And so the idea is, unless we repent, we will perish. Now look at Acts chapter 2, Pentecost Day. You have some who were present guilty of the death of Jesus on Calvary. And you remember the Bible says that those who heard the gospel on that day, they were cut or pricked in their heart. And they cried out unto Peter and the rest of the apostles. And here's what they asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter, along with the other apostles, were divine, divinely appointed spokesmen. Matter of fact, in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, the Bible says that they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So you have... Men who were inspired, they were inspired men preaching an inspired message. When they asked, what shall we do? 
Peter said in a very succinct way, number one, you need to repent. Number two, he said, you need to be baptized. Listen to him. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Now, you remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 at verse 46? The Lord said, Why do you call me Lord and do not the things which I say? In Matthew chapter 7 at verse 21, Jesus would say, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. That means we have to take what the Lord said, his simple, plain commands, and put them into action. Do you remember Saul of Tarsus? On the road to Damascus, the Lord met him, wanted to know why he was persecuting, persecuting him. And the Bible tells us that he called upon a man by the name of Ananias to go and to meet with Saul of Tarsus. Bear in mind that Saul has been praying and fasting for three days. And when Ananias arrived, he said to Saul, And now, why tarriest thou, or what are you waiting on? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Now that was a command of Almighty God. Jesus said in Mark 16, verse 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. In Acts chapter 2, a parallel passage. On Pentecost Day, when they wanted to know, what do we need to do? Here's what the Lord said. You need to repent and be baptized so that you can enjoy the remission of your sins, so that your sins can be washed away, a divine command of Almighty God. In the realm of Christianity, I mentioned a moment ago that the Bible tells us what to do to be saved and to stay saved. We're to live a steadfast, faithful life in Christ Jesus. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, Be ye steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not vain in the Lord. Is it not the case that the Lord has set forth criterion by which we are to approach him in worship? In John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus said, God is spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. There are five acts of worship. We didn't pull those acts out of thin air, but rather the scriptures teach us how we are to approach Almighty God in worship. It was said of the ancient church, Acts 2, verse 42, that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers, components of New Testament worship. And so you had worship, in the first century church. But also, what about the work of the church? Is it not the case that we have been saved to serve and that the Lord has outlined, stipulated the work of the church? Listen to what he said in Mark 16, verse 15. Go ye unto all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Is that a command of God? In Matthew 28, at verse 19, Jesus commanded, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 20, he said, Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So there are facts that must be believed, commands to be obeyed.
Now, thirdly, there are promises to be enjoyed. Listen again to what Peter said down in verse 4. By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Those terms remind us of the goodness of Almighty God. Peter said that we have received, that we are the recipients of exceedingly great and precious promises. So what are those promises? Well, a moment ago we talked about commands that must be obeyed. You remember again the command given on Pentecost Day to repent and be baptized. Well, what's a promise associated with that? Well, the remission of sins, the washing away of sins. We might say it like this, pardon. Are there not people in the world today that question whether or not God would be willing to forgive them? Some have the idea that they've just gone too far, that there is no way that a loving God in heaven would be interested in them as a human being. Look, you need to understand something. You have an eternal soul that is incredibly worthwhile in the sight of God. Otherwise, God would not have spared his own son, Romans chapter 8. When you comply with the prom- or rather when you comply with the commands of God, the promise is pardon. The Hebrew writer said it well in chapter 8 verse 12. He said, "I will be merciful to their unrighteousness." Their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. Did you know that whatever the sin, God will forgive? That's a wonderful promise, that God will forgive any sin. God will forgive all sin. Think about the church like a hospital. A hospital is for sick people. Well, we're sick with what? With sin. And the remedy for sin is the blood of Jesus. When we obey the gospel, we enjoy pardon. We enjoy the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. No wonder Paul said, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And then what about as a child of God? One of the great, great blessings, that being prayer. In Ephesians 1.3, Paul tells us that every spiritual blessing resides in Christ. One of those great spiritual blessings is to know that there's a God in heaven who will listen attentively to our prayers. Peter said the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. That means that there is a God in heaven who will listen to every single syllable that I utter. That is a wonderful promise, isn't it? You know, David said many years ago, cast your burden on the Lord. He'll sustain you. Peter said, we're to cast all our cares on him. The reason being, he cares for us. 1 Peter chapter 5 at verse 7. The Hebrew writer assures us that when we draw close to the throne of God, we do so in anticipation of finding mercy and grace to help in time of need. What a tremendous blessing to know that the God of heaven is willing to listen to my prayers and answer them in accordance with his will. And then what about the promise of heaven? The hope of heaven. Aren't you grateful that you have, as a child of God, the assurance of one day being in the presence of God and with his people forevermore? Peter said that we have an inheritance 
It is incorruptible, undefiled. It fades not away. It's reserved in heaven. I love the words of John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 25, when he said, this is the promise that he's promised us. All right, John, what's that promise? Here it is, eternal life. Paul writes in Titus chapter 1 at verse 2 that we live in hope of life eternal, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. It's wonderful to think that we have the presence of God here upon planet earth, but to know that when we step out into eternity, the Lord is with us. As David said many years ago, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. I'm so grateful that we enjoy the precious promises of Almighty God. These are some things that you need to know, that there are facts that must be believed, commands to be obeyed, promises to be enjoyed. God bless you. Thank you for listening today. We would love to have you visit with us at the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandridge Road, Olive Branch, Mississippi, 38654. We meet for Sunday Bible study at 9 a.m. Worship is at 10 a.m. Sunday afternoon study is at 1 p.m. Tuesday morning class, Bible class, is at 10 a.m. Wednesday evening Bible class at 7 p.m. Please visit our website, www.olivebranchchurchofchrist.org.